Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. So, we need like a drum roll or something, because today today we're finally ending our series on the late 18th century, the end of the 1700s. This is the third episode on this period, so if you haven't, go back and listen to the other two. What's crazy is that we originally planned to do everything in a single episode. So the first episode was about Linnaeus and Buffon. Both of them were people who were interested in categorizing human groups, but Linnaeus was the one who was much more interested in fixity of races and racial characteristics and believed that they had been passed to humans from God. In the second chunk, we focus primarily on the philosopher Immanuel Kant, the natural historian Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, and the comparative anatomist Petrus Camper. I can't believe we did that. That joke, man. <laughs> Come <laughs> on. keeps on giving. <laughs> that, I, that, that's a good enough summary. We don't need to say anything else. <laughs> I think it's important for listeners that we take a step back from what we're doing here and emphasize why we have spent three whole episodes, three whole ungodly episodes <laughs> in the 1700s when other accounts sometimes jump straight into the 1800s and zoom off into the 19th century slavery debate. So I think we can start all the way back to 20 years ago when historian Nicholas Hudson wrote an essay suggesting that it was really in the 1700s that ideas about race began to become scientific. Really, some of our efforts in the last few episodes have just been to show that Indeed, race and science overlapped and melded quite a bit in the 18th century. And the ideas that people are debating today, that neo-fascists and white nationalists like Richard Spencer are spinning out, or maybe even the more sophisticated scientific racism of Charles Murray, all that stuff is rooted in our concepts that Linnaeus and Kant were sort of putting forward and that were challenged by people like Buffon and Blumenbach over two centuries ago during this thing called the Enlightenment. The other thing that we need to point out is that the 18th century was when ideas about liberty and governance were being formulated by some of our founders in the U.S. and also the French Republic and the British Empire. Race and science issues completely intersected with the worldviews of important political thinkers like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Really, if people thought about it for a minute, I think most educated people would probably realize that men like Thomas Jefferson were thinking about science and race while they were writing their famous documents, just because those were the issues being debated by people whose books that people like Jefferson read and respected. We're going to have some quotes later on in the episode that make that really clear. So today, maybe we can show some of these connections to our listeners. In order to do that, though, we have to close out our discussion of the more general European Enlightenment by focusing on Edinburgh, Scotland. Woo! You know, it's a little weird to me just how many really influential people were all right next to each other right at the same time in Scotland. Some of them had dinner with each other regularly and talked about new ideas like law and economic stuff and archaeology, philosophy, chemistry, race, science, all the stuff that would end up becoming super influential even today. Yeah, historians have speculated that the persistence of these little interest clubs, um, like one was called the Select Society, and then there was another one called the Poker Club, which was not a card-playing club. It was actually a debate society where the people in the society were supposed to poke at social conventions, Uh right? (laughs) 
So these little clubs meant that ideas were bouncing around between different groups more in Edinburgh, Scotland, than just about anywhere else on Earth at the time. And also you need to remember that Scotland had four established universities. Even England only had Oxford and Cambridge at the time. So the number of established places of higher learning must have had something to do with this explosion of ideas in Scotland. Also really good whiskey. There is that. Mm, Whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Where is the Scotch whiskey today? Where is the whiskey when you need it? Um, and, and we also can't forget that by the mid-1700s, Edinburgh had one of the best medical schools in the world, including a bunch of the best anatomists. Totally. Maybe today we could start by describing some of the stuff on race that came out of these little societies. And maybe we should do that by looking at three of the most important figures who were all at the same dinner parties together. Ooh. And then after that, we can turn to some of the really big name anatomists from Scotland that had a lasting impact on the history of science and race. Deal. So where should we start? Well, I, I think we have to start with David Hume. I mean, he is, after all, the one Scottish philosopher that almost every freshman in philosophy courses has heard about. Hmm. So That's true. I th- yeah, I think it has to be him. Who else of these figures, or anyone else for that matter, did Kant claim awakened him from his dogmatic slumbers, which resulted in Kant doing some of his most profound work late in his career? That sounds important. Insert Kant joke here. (laughs) I can't take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so who is David Hume? Well, he was uh, born in Edinburgh in 1711. He was a philosopher, an historian, an economist, an essayist, somewhat of an iconoclast, obviously very clever, but he was a late blooming, late born son to his family. So he didn't have any real family wealth to go on. So he basically had to make his way in the world. But he did go to university at a very early age. But he also left without finishing a degree. Because as he put it much later in a letter to a friend, there is nothing to be learnt from a professor which is not to be met with in books. Oh, There's a lot to be said for that. <laughs> or Wikipedia, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, because everything in Wikipedia is true, right? Exactly. Um, and he gets discussed in, in intro to philosophy classes today as a key empiricist and skeptic. And he played a key role in, like Kant did, in trying to develop the social sciences along the lines that Bacon had outlined for the natural sciences. He wanted to turn the social sciences into a type of physics. So how does he intersect with the history of science and race? The, the essay that he starts to talk about race in was originally published in 1748, and it's called Of National Character. And in this essay... He's trying to lay out the causes of differences in national character. Uh, So, for instance, he says, we expect greater wit and gaiety in a Frenchman than in a Spaniard. And an Englishman will naturally be supposed to have more knowledge than a Dane. Hmm. (laughs) And what, what he's trying to do is to come up with the explanation for why these differences exist. And in particular, he's trying to make a strict discrimination between what he refers to as moral and physical causes. Now, he's using the term moral in a sense that we don't generally use it today. He's using it for what we think of today as the social sciences and philosophy. He says that the political and economic conditions are the primary moral causes of differences in character, while physical causes 
which refer to the air and climate, are almost negligible in terms of making up the difference that we see between one national personality and another. So that's a real distinction from some of the earlier thinkers we've talked about who were convinced that environment and climate shaped racial character, right? Like the Greeks. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is how he makes the argument against physical causes— And in the process, he encroaches on very dangerous racial territory for the first time in his career. Hume says, if the characters of men depended on the air and climate, the degrees of heat and cold should naturally be expected to have a mighty influence, since nothing has a greater effect on all plants and irrational animals. And indeed, there is some reason to think that all the nations which live beyond the polar circles or between the tropics are inferior to the rest of the species and are incapable of all the higher attainments of the human mind. The poverty and misery of the northern inhabitants of the globe and the indolence of the southern from their few necessities may perhaps account for this remarkable difference without our having recourse to physical causes. This, however, is certain, that the characters of nations are very promiscuous, and what he means by that is variable, in the temperate climates, and that almost all the general observations which have been formed of the more southern or more northern people in these climates are found to be uncertain and fallacious. What he's doing there is wondering why people that are native to the polar regions or to the tropics fail to come up to his expectations for intellectual development. So people who are not in, let's say, Europe are just inferior, and it doesn't really matter whether they're in a polar atmosphere or a tropical atmosphere. Yeah, uh, he he, he gets to that. Yeah, he gets to that. Yeah. He also gives an example of what he refers, what he thinks of as a race. Uh, And this, we should note, predates uh, Buffon's attempt to try and uh, define race. And then he describes why he doesn't use the term race for humans. He says... The races of animals never degenerate when carefully tended, and horses in particular always show their blood in their shape, spirit, and swiftness. But a coxcomb may beget a philosopher, as a man of virtue may leave a worthless progeny. So what he's saying here is that race is indicated by the continuity of characteristics, generation after generation after generation. But by contrast, he's saying that the differences that we see in human groups and the change that we may see from parent to offspring in humans can be the result of social causes or his moral causes. Mm -hmm. He had a habit of recycling and reissuing his essays periodically. The first statement that I gave you uh, a minute ago about the deficiencies of the polar and tropical people stood as the only statement that we could even think to associate with race in his work for a full five years before he added a momentous footnote that took him into the race debate as a polygenist in 1853. You mean 1753? Yes, I do. In 1753. All right, so what does he say in 1753? He appends this footnote. I am apt to suspect the Negroes and in general all the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. That's pretty straightforward. Yes, it is. Now, we need to note that there was a lot of criticism uh, within the Scottish societies that he was a member of. 
And late in his life, he actually revised this particular sentence uh, and he replaced it with the statement, I am apt to suspect the Negroes to be naturally inferior to the white, dropping the other species of humans. Well, that's a vast improvement. So this is another one of those examples of a person basically setting, humans basically setting out a dichotomy with whites on blacks and superior whites. and yep. blacks on inferior. Okay. Mm. That, that's exactly what he ended up and maintained that throughout his, throughout his whole career. Uh, that second sentence, by the way, was published only posthumously. Hmm. He goes on in that footnote to note that there scarcely ever was a civilized nation of that complexion, dark complexion that is, nor even any individual eminent either in action or speculation. No ingenious manufacturers among, amongst them, no arts, no sciences. On the other hand, the most rude and barbarous of the whites, such as the ancient Germans. Those the Germans. I know. The present Tartars have still something eminent about them in their valor, their form of government, or some other particular. Such a uniform and constant difference could not happen in so many countries and ages if nature had not made an original distinction between these breeds of men. Hmm. Again, I emphasize breeds because he's not using the term races. Not to mention our colonies, there are Negro slaves dispersed all over Europe of whom none ever discovered any symptoms of ingenuity. Though low people without education will start up amongst us and distinguish themselves in every profession. In Jamaica, indeed, they talk of one Negro as a man of parts and learning, but it's likely that he is admired for slender accomplishments, like a parrot who speaks a few words plainly. Wow. His stuff was going to be repeated over and over again in the 19th century, too, it sounds like. Uh. He really was anticipating so much of what we see in the 19th century. We'll get to that one day. Yep, someday <laughs> we may. All right, Joe, you also <laughs> read somebody important from the Enlightenment in Scotland. I did. Who did you look at? I did. I love this guy. Um, this is James Burnett. Um, he and Hume knew each other quite well. Wait yes. a second. James Burnett goes by a different name, though, right? Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, <laughs> Burnett was a Scottish judge. Um, he lived from 1714 to 1799, and he was educated both at the University of Edinburgh and at Groningen. Is that how you say it? Groningen, yeah. Can you say it with a Scottish accent? It's not Scottish. No, it's oh. German. <laughs> Damn it. German Can you say it with a German accent? Groningen. <laughs> no, that was a Scottish. Yeah. Give us that Scottish burr. Say it. Say it. Come on. Go ahead. Um, so, yes, his name is actually James Burnett. But when he was appointed a justice of the high court in 1767, he adopted a title. And he based it on the name of his father's country estate. You ready for this? Monbado House. Monbado. 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 Is that really a song? Lombada? Oh, right. <laughs> Let's be honest. It's a goofy name. But that's what he's really known as. He, as I said, he was a judge, and he initially rose to fame because he was involved in the litigation of the famous Douglas Cause in the 1760s. Have you guys ever heard about this? Uh, no. So no, Douglas me. Cause? The Douglas Cause or the Douglas Case. Um, it was kind of like the 18th century Scottish equivalent of the O.J. Simpson case in the sense that it was super high profile and everyone across Western Europe was reading about it and following it and debating it um, very, very publicly. Were there it, gloves involved? No, it, it was, there was no murder either. Oh. It also involved... Well, how's this like O.J. Simpson then? <laughs> I mean, in, And in the guys of, were white instead of black, right? Yes. <laughs> Did anyone play football? No. <laughs> USC? God damn it. No. Buffalo Bills. Shh. <laughs> like O.J. Simpson, in the sense that it was 
very highly publicized and all over the place. But he makes the cut here in our little chat today, not for his legal chops, which were really very impressive, but because he was another of these sort of proto-evolutionary theory guys who was part of these circles and salons that were going on. He was in the select society, right? Yeah, yeah. D- alongside of David Hume. Yep. But also people like Adam Smith. Yep. Who wrote Wealth of Nations. Correct. Intellectually, he's most often remembered as a founder of comparative linguistics because he wrote this six-volume behemoth called Of the Origin and Progress of Language in the late 18th century, really just after he'd been appointed to the high court. And that might not sound like it has a lot to do with race, but his central goal here was to try to discern how human language as a broad phenomenon had sort of come about in human history. And he did this by comparing features of extant languages and dead languages, for which we have a lot of historical record. He was fluent in Greek, for example, um, and combining those comparisons with what was known about humans and their close primate relatives at the time. So I spent just a little bit of time wading through various of those volumes, and they range incredibly from topics like the formation of ancient Greek and Roman to primitive versus derivative words to diction to writing to oration styles and on and on and on. He even spends a bunch of time doing things like examining word length and vowel to consonant ratio among the languages he sees as more primitive and those he sees as more advanced. Um, And so in that sense, he was like many of his contemporaries, including Hume, a little bit of a cultural evolutionist, we might say. He was actually the first person to propose in writing what's known as the single origin hypothesis, or the idea that all humans came from a single place on Earth and then spread out from there. He based this on the studies he'd been doing of languages, and he was convinced that the origin point was ancient Egypt. But he was talking with Sir William Jones in India, right? Oh, yeah. So you remember William Jones from the first India episode? He was the magistrate, I think, in Bengal, who actually came up with the Aryan invasion idea. He was really interested also in language. In the Indo-European-er language thing, too, right? Right, right, right. So he and Munbodo wrote back and forth with each other about Sanskrit. And he agreed with Jones that um, it seemed like a whole bunch of languages had sprouted off from Sanskrit. And he speculated that people in the Indian subcontinent had learned Sanskrit from ancient Egyptians and that it had come from them to the people of South Asia and then spread out. Not Um, Aryans. Yeah, good point. So it came from Africa, not someplace else in Asia or Europe. Well... Yeah, but well, that's I, interestingly different, though. Right? I don't think he disagreed with. I don't think he disagreed with him about the Aryan invasion idea. I think what he thought was that some proto-Sanskrit-ish language came from Egypt, Egypt to the Aryans, yeah. and then from the Aryans in. Okay. So he aligned humans and apes much more closely than many people were doing at the time. He debated with Buffon about man's relationship to other primates. Buffon thought that people and apes were not directly related, but Monboto did. And oh. this meant that as part of his grand project of figuring out human language, he also did stuff with primates, like comparing their speech organs to the speech organs of humans and As a side note, he also did a lot of stuff with horse breeding. So he was kind of steeped in these ideas about both questions of biological descent as well as questions about human origins. And he never really arrived at the idea that humans evolved from a common primate ancestor. But he was on the way, nevertheless, with some ideas that were pretty ahead of his time. He had some weirdo ideas too, though, right? Yeah, yeah. He was a really eccentric guy, which is why I like him so much. Um, One of them, which actually sounds weird at first, but turns out not to be so weird, is that he thought orangutans were a type of person. He thought they were humans who were primitive and close to what early sort of pre-civilization humans would have been like. And he wrote about this a lot. And in this second major work that he did after The Origin and Progress of Language, which was called Ancient Metaphysics, also six 
freaking volumes. Yeah, I like to write. Everything was six volumes for him. Um, he concluded the following about the orangutan. <clears throat> Quote, he has the sense of what is decent and becoming, which is peculiar to man and distinguishes him from the brute as much as anything else. He has a sense of honor, for he cannot bear to be exposed as show nor to be laughed at. And travelers mention examples of some of them having died of vexation for being so treated. He has also the feeling of humanity in a strong degree and a sense of justice. So that sounds kind of odd, but he, Monboto wasn't the only one who was thinking this either. Jean-Jacques Rousseau actually was musing about it as well, among others. And um, Monboto argued with Petrus Camper actually about it. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, he's the facial angle guy. Right. Monboto was one of the first to point out that we can learn a lot about people and our communication styles and our language abilities by looking at apes and their communication and language abilities. So that crazy idea actually panned out pretty well. Okay, I thought he had even crazier ideas. Oh, he did. He did. Okay. What are those? <laughs> Tell us. He believed that humans had developed in this state of sort of um, oneness with nature where they walked around on all fours and ate only plants and were solitary and very peaceable. The paleo diet? So he had all kinds of bizarre <clears throat> sort of health-oriented lifestyle practices that he followed, one of which my personal favorite was taking what he called air baths. Oh, like Benjamin Franklin. Did Benjamin they would just, Franklin do that? Yeah, they would just like lay around naked with the windows open. Well, he got up at 4 a.m. every morning and walked around naked in his bedroom with the windows open for an hour and then went to bed and slept for two this more hours. This must have been a thing with those guys. That's he, so weird. He anointed himself with oil too because he thought these were the practices that would sort of preserve this natural environment that humans arose in. Um, he also once stated publicly that humans were sometimes born with tails that midwives must be surreptitiously removing. So understandably... He was kind of a celebrity in Edinburgh. He was odd and smart, and he held public office, and he said funny things like stuff about people having tails. Those are like the four criteria for being 18th century fabulous, and he was it. I think that's still true today. (laughs) You don't have to be smart today. Oh, yeah. Good point. Or hold public office. Or be odd, for that matter. But it helps. So, Joe, what does this have to do with science and race? Remember, he thought that all humans had sort of shown up somewhere in Egypt and that he believed Egypt at the time had this sort of salubrious climate where everyone was just gently playing in the woods on all fours and eating the plants and stuff. And then somehow they ended up in ancient Greece. Ancient Greece was like the pinnacle of human society. And unlike many other people at the time that he was thinking and working, he believed that every human society since the ancient Greeks was actually kind of like a degradation of Greek perfection, including his own. He thought that people had been degrading since the time of the ancient Greeks because they'd been spreading all over the place and had been getting exposed to seasonality, which he thought was sort of against the natural state of humanity. So he was really interested also in this connection between seasonal climate variability and human perfection. All right. So can I share my person? Yes. All right. So your person, Eric, uh, Henry Holm, uh, who's better known as Lord Kames. And Lord Kames had a relationship both with Hume and Mbato. Some people think of him as sort of a mentor to them. Some people think of him as an enemy, at least of Mbato. He was a popular writer. Uh, his most famous book was actually called The Art of Thinking. And it's a book that Ben Franklin often cited among his favorite books. Uh, Home was a member of the thing we talked about a minute ago, the Select Society, which lasted for about 10 years. But the reason why he's important for us is because in 1774, he writes this book called Sketches of the History of Man. Not quite up to Mombato's level of six volumes. It's only a four-volume Oh, come work, on. But it's still a lot of words. And in his Sketches of the History of Man, 
Um, Kames comes up with this four-stage model of human development. Now, I don't think that he invented this, but he puts it really, really clearly, and it becomes this model of cultural evolutionism that we will see again and again over the history of anthropology, even up to, doesn't V. Gordon Child have something like this model in the 20th century, or am I remembering that wrong? I'm getting funny looks, so maybe not. Anyway, so Kames uh, lays it out. He says that originally humans were hunter-gatherers, and the big cultural activity that we did at that stage was to come up with all this mythology. Then eventually we graduated to being pastoral nomadic, which he included like uh, the ancient Hebrews in that. And the big thing that those groups come up with, the Sumerians and stuff, uh, is writing. And then eventually humans became agricultural settled down come up with legal codes specifically because in order to have really productive agriculture i guess you need private property at least some notion of that according to kames hmm. and then the final stage for humans is one that's ordered around commerce and then protected by full governments and he actually even comes up with this notion that capitalism the economic system that uh he thinks is the most advanced works by way of creative destruction, which I feel like I hear economists even now talking about that notion. He might be right. But this whole thing is based upon his theory of race. So right at the very beginning, in the first volume, in the first chapter, he writes concerning the origin of men and languages. So he disagrees a little bit with Mombato about the order in which languages come about, but he totally agrees that essentially we have to believe that there is one language underneath all of the other languages and that all languages uh, derive from that initial language. He also thinks that humans essentially all come from a common ancestor. So uh, the way that we have all these different groups, though, he says, quote, thus it appears that there are different races of men fitted by nature for different climates. At least he holds that up at first as the thing that he's going to agree with, the same thing essentially that Buffon is saying. But then he actually spends a bunch of, t of space in this chapter disagreeing with Buffon about the logic of monogenism. Quote, I say more that there are many instances of races of people preserving their original color in climates very different from their own and not a single instance of the contrary as far as I can learn. So where does he fall on this? So he's weird. He's he's kind of a monogenist at heart, but he takes on all these other arguments that even Hume had put forth about polygenism. He sort of wants hmm. to have it both ways, and he lays out this very cogent argument as to why someone should be a polygenist, that there's more evidence for polygenism than there is for monogenism, except he still thinks that at the end of the day, the biblical account is the correct one. And so you have to um, agree that all humans are related. So hmm. ultimately, he thinks at the very beginning, everyone had to be physically and mentally related. But then over time, climate is the creator of all of the different races. Physical causes, not moral causes. Exactly. Physical causes, not hmm. moral causes, end up being the difference between groups. What I found the most interesting is that the argument that Kames lays out in the 1700s is, in, is spookily similar to what Alfred Russell Wallace will say in the 1860s before Darwin will lay out Descent of Man. Wallace gives essentially the same argument that Kames gives, where... You can have both your monogenism and your polygenism. 
It's just that the monogenism is, there's no proof for it. It's just that we're going to go ahead and agree that it's the case. The only proof is on the side. The only physical proof is on the side of polygenism. Hmm. Interesting, right? Yeah. There's one other funny story. Can I tell you the funny story? Yeah, I want to tell the one about the tails too. All right, you tell your story about the tails. Home and Mbato basically like sparred publicly all the time. And there's one instance where they were going into the high court and Holm was like, no, no, you first, Sir Monbato. And he was like, why should I go ahead of you? And he said something like, so I can see your tail, my lord. <laughs> that sounds like him. Yeah, they were burning each other all the time. And Monbato made fun of Henry Holmes' inability to speak fluent Greek. And like they just they had an interesting relationship. So apparently when Kames retires from the bench at the age of 84, the last thing that he says, and apparently this is actually on the record, is... Fair ye will, ye bitches. <laughs> and then he dropped the mic and walked out. Nice. That's an early mic drop. So we have Hume and Monbato and Kames. They're pretty significant Scottish figures, but they're all philosophers and lawyers, and in the case of Hume, a librarian. But what about the Scott? That was the only position he could get. He couldn't get on the faculty. Adam Smith hmm. basically said, we don't want you here as a faculty best friend. We don't want you here as a faculty member. You're too controversial. Dang. So were there Scottish scientists that were making these arguments at this time? Well, there were some of those, too. And in fact, the scientists overlapped to a pretty surprising degree with these three guys that we've already been talking Although, about. Although, to be fair, our modern notion of the scientist still wasn't a thing in the 18th century, especially in Scotland. All these folks would have been gentlemen, uh, natural historians, or natural philosophers. Unless they were also medical men, which is the next two guys we want to talk about. That was a good segue. So, Thanks. <laughs> William and John Hunter were two brothers from a large family outside of Glasgow, Scotland. And they end up being arguably the most influential anatomists in all of Great Britain in the 18th century. This is important, too, because this is the time when anatomy and physiology begin to become important, not just for medicine, but for discussions of natural history. Linnaeus used the data of anatomy and physiology to categorize humans, among other species. Blumenbach talks at great length about physiology in his discussion of the anatomy of different skulls. And and John Hunter, he's the younger brother, he would use whole skeletons to create a new argument for the relatedness of humans with non-human animals. There are two Hunterian museums uh, William Hunter's museum is in Edinburgh, and John Hunter's is in London. And both of these museums presented arguments in bones that were more explicit, even than Linnaeus's, that humans and non-human primates looked like they belong in the same family together. So here's a quick little biography of William Hunter. He's the older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, So in the 1740s, he apprenticed at St. George Hospital in London as an obstetrician. Back then, it was called midwifery, and men really weren't very much a part of it, Um, but he was an exception. And so he became one of the first mid-husbands. He rapidly became one of the best-known obstetricians in the kingdom. He was the personal physician to Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III. And he may have convinced her to put money into specialized pregnancies hospitals, which were called lying-in hospitals, where his brother, John Hunter, often taught courses. Uh, One of his assistants was a guy named William Hewson. 
Hewson ran an anatomy clinic out of his house, which was the house at 36 Craven Street from 1772 until his accidental death after a dissection in 1774. Wait, did you say 36 Craven Street? Yeah, why? Well, that's where the Benjamin Franklin house is when you visit London, according to Eric. Also, it was in the news back in 1998 when they were working on the museum that's housed there now. The workmen found the remains of six children and four adults in the basement. Obviously, Franklin was a mass murderer. (laughs) Their their skeletons had clear indicators that they were used in medical experiments. Archaeologists dated their bones to the early 1770s when William Hewson lived in the house with Franklin. Whoa. So did Franklin know about the medical experiments? I don't see how he would have. Oh, wait a minute. Did I say would? I meant wouldn't. (laughs) Wouldn't see. I don't see how he wouldn't have. It's a double negative type of thing. And that, dear listeners, is called a very politically contextual joke. (laughs) Okay. So I want to talk about John Hunter. The other brother. The, the younger brother was actually trained by his brother, William, but ended up becoming far more famous. In fact, people call him, or at least did for a while, the father of philosophical surgery. Hmm. So in 1748, he sent to, to join his brother, William, in London, mostly because he was getting into trouble all the time. And so for the next 11 years, he's the guy who prepared all the dissections that William would show in his classes. And also, he was the guy who did a lot of the experiments on animals and people. Hmm. In 1753, he would be named Master of Anatomy at the Barber Surgeons Hall in London. That's still there to this day. And in 1755, he becomes more famous than his brother when he does this famous embalming by arterial injection, which had not been done before. He actually replaced the blood of a wealthy woman uh, because in her will, she said that her husband could inherit her fortune only so long as she remained above the ground, figuring she was about to be buried. And so the husband hired John Hunter to replace all of her blood so that she would stay above the ground forever so that he could inherit her fortune. What did he replace it with? Folgers crystals. I don't don't know. So in 1760, he goes to the Royal Army as a surgeon. This is important. Uh, Britain's at war in the Seven Years' War with France. We call it the French and Indian War in the United States, but it's actually the Seven Years' War. Uh, They fight Portugal as well. And... John Hunter becomes locally famous for not operating on bullet wounds. Hmm. It's because he believes the body just naturally heals itself, so you should basically just leave it alone and only amputate as a last resort. This sounds totally insignificant, but it turns out to be pretty important. Not only because most of the people he doesn't operate on end up living. They don't die from infection like the guys who do get operated on. Hmm. In 1763, he starts teaching his own anatomy classes, and some of his students include Adam Smith, the economist, Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin, and even David Hume. You know, he was also Monboto's personal secretary for a while, too. I didn't know that. Yeah. These guys were in like a crazy, powerful little network. Yes, they were. Yeah. All right, so in 1776, while his brother is the surgeon for Queen Charlotte, John Hunter becomes surgeon extraordinary to King George III himself. And in fact, historians now estimate that he was probably present at the dissection of more than 2,000 bodies, including Whoa. some of the most prominent people in the entire kingdom. He's also famous for stealing the body of Charles Byrne, who at seven foot seven was known as the Irish giant. And his skeleton was, up until just a couple of years ago, still displayed inside Hunter's Museum in London. He was friends with Sir Joseph Banks. The Banks clothing was guy? Known for 
being, yep, Sir Joseph Banks, the clothing guy, uh, who was also known as uh, because he was on Cook's expedition where they found all that crazy stuff in the Pacific Islands that they shipped back to England. And one of the things that happens is that John Hunter basically takes all these exotic animals from Banks and displays them in his own museum. According to legend, uh, John Hunter's house becomes the model house that Robert Louis Stevenson will use for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Hmm. It's because the front of his house was a normal house. The back of his house was his lecture theater, his anatomy lab, and the place where he displayed all of these animals and bones and things like that. By the time Hunter dies, uh, he donates his entire collection. And when it opens in 1783, actually it's before he dies, he opens it before he dies, uh, the collection is already at 13,000 specimens. Whoa. You can go and see it in London as soon as it opens again next year, I think. I want to go to there. This guy sounds like a classic serial killer. Seriously. Um, well, yeah, I think we've uh, we've nailed the biographies of the Hunter brothers, but what's important about them in terms of understanding our race and science scheme? Well, there's a few things we could say here. When it comes to the history of medicine, the Hunter brothers were really crucial because before them, surgeons were lumped in with barbers and dentists. Um, they were still seen as these kind of sinister quacks, not least of which because they needed cadavers to practice on. There was a very limited supply of cadavers at the time. However, they could buy the bodies of the poor from graves to use for dissections, which really bothered people who believed that Jesus would raise them from the dead in bodily form one day. The Irish giant, Charles Byrne, that Eric mentioned a minute ago, actually gave instructions for his undertaker to seal him inside a lead casket so that John Hunter couldn't get to him and dissect <laughs> his body. But Hunter paid off a pallbearer and had Byrne's body swapped out for some heavy rocks before sealing the casket. And he still cut the poor bastard. <laughs> um, many people will have heard of the Burke and Hare murders, which took place in the 19th century, to supply bodies for Robert Knox, a medical instructor who was affiliated with the University of Edinburgh. Ooh, and somebody who we should discuss in a future podcast episode. We'll get there. Even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is hearkening to this sort of wild west of medicine and surgery in the 18th and 19th centuries. Perhaps somewhat ironically, the Hunter brothers were key figures in making surgery seem a little less macabre and a little more scientific. Each of them worked in obstetrics, too, which had been a woman-dominated and non-surgical field before the Hunter brothers entered became into it. Became mid-husbands. Before they became mid-husbands. But partly it was also just because of these incredible connections that they maintained even to English royalty. To be Fair. They didn't escape all the charges of still being kind of grotesque madmen. But the point is the dropping of that stigma <laughs> around surgeons over time was key to getting scientific surgery more into the mainstream. And the Hunter brothers were really central to that. On top of the medical stuff, which I, I agree with you, Joe, that was that is really a crucial point. I think that there are two reasons why John Hunter especially was a transition point for race and science, especially in what used to be called the natural history of mankind. First, John Hunter highlighted this notion of biological dynamic equilibrium. This is why he didn't do surgery on men that just had gunshot wounds. What does that mean? He believed that there was this sort of series of relationships, even within the body, that would be maintained by the body however possible. Like homeostasis. He coins the term animal economy mm. to describe this. John would apply this notion of animal economy to the human body, but even to human social organizations. So what he does, effect, in effect, is to naturalize the already existing racial and class divisions within the British Empire. If there was any major change, let's say abolition, Hunter argued that this would only result in sort of 
slow, gradual, organic change in the hierarchy of races, if there was any change at all. Ooh, another fun fact. For those of you who've heard of Michel Foucault, he pointed to a transition in the late 18th century from static external natural history classification to the science of biology, which privileged this idea of sort of dynamic internal processes. Sounds like John Hunter is the epicenter of that transformation. That's if, good. Yeah. And, and there's a second reason, which I think also gets to what Foucault said. John would organize his museum of 13,000 specimens as a bunch of organs displayed in series of perfection from series primitive. Is? is that how you say series? it? Series? Series? Series. I'm just giving you a hard time. In series of perfection from the most primitive to the most advanced. At first, he just had um, tumors and diseased organs. But over time, he began to write more and more on the natural history of man. And he would begin to organize his specimens along the theories that he introduced in that work. So one of the first things that you would see upon entering his house slash museum slash place where you act things apart was an assemblage of skulls, starting with lizards and amphibians and going up through birds and then various mammals and eventually humans. And even the human skulls were organized from savage to civilized. He traveled around with these heads too. Whenever he traveled around to give lectures on midwifery, which is what it was still called in the 1790s at these lying in hospitals that were sponsored by Queen Charlotte, he would give an introduction to the, these courses, and he always called it his lecture on the gradation of skulls. This strongly suggested an evolutionary connection between animals and humans that would persuade Darwin to write about evolution. And of course, I'm talking about Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin, who writes about evolution first. Hmm. It's also through the hunters that we get to one of the key unsung characters of the Enlightenment, Charles White. White was a surgeon and a friend of John Hunter's. White and Hunter studied together in London, and then White went on to study medicine at Edinburgh, and he founded a hospital in Manchester. In the early 1790s, he attended one of these lectures that John Hunter was giving at Manchester, and he heard about the gradation of skulls, the course that Eric was just talking about. After hearing his old buddy Hunter give this talk on skulls in series, White decided to specialize in the natural history of mankind to extend what John Hunter had started and to focus on humans, the gradation of humans. White never claimed to be as prominent as John Hunter, and he didn't leave behind much in terms of like a museum of specimens or whatever. But in some ways, in his 1799 book, which was called An Account of the Regular Gradation in Man and in Different Animals and Vegetables, that book, in some ways, had a bigger impact than almost any of these other guys on the history of race and science. While openly arguing for the end of slavery, he was adamant that he disagreed with slavery and supported Charles Darwin's other grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood, the Wedgwood China guy, um, in his movement for the abolition of slavery in Britain. Yeah, but he wasn't all about we're all equal, right? No, not at all. He still argued, like some of these other figures we've talked about today, that light-skinned European men were superior and dark-skinned dark Africans were just a tiny step above apes. I think Charles White's methodology is worth mentioning. He was known for measuring everything he could, 
the length of arm bones, the number of and distance between teeth, the angle of the jaw, the flatness of the feet, the width of the head, sexual organs, number of sweat glands, walking gait, speed and pattern of hair growth, even body odor. Ew. Ugh. Many other naturalists have measured skulls. Okay, wait a minute. How do you measure body odor I back don't in know. the 1790s? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's totally subjective, but he talks about this a great deal. <laughs> so Here, many other sniff your armpit. <laughs> many, many other naturalists have measured skulls. And White did that, too. He checked the numbers of these other people against his own measurements. And he saw something that was initially surprising. Europeans, the group that was universally recognized by this point for, quote, superiority and intellectual powers, didn't actually have a much larger crania than any other racial group. (gasps) Imagine that. Oh, no. But, but. They were supposed to have big heads because big heads meant big brains and big brains meant better intelligence. How did White account for why Europeans were not out and out the biggest brains? So it's true that perhaps Europeans had nearly the same brain size as everybody else. But White argued that they dedicated less of their available cognitive real estate to the five senses than any other human racial group. Europeans, according to his measurements, were the worst at seeing and smelling, were possibly worse than anyone else at physical labor, and according to his sources, they succumbed to tropical disease much more quickly than Africans or Asians. Therefore, concluded White, Europeans were the least beast-like of all humans. If we're the worst at smell, then how in the world did he figure out body odor? Good question. But most importantly... A ruler. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, White also was arguing against the ideas of Buffon, uh, against monogenism. White explicitly argued for the, the notion of polygenism, many origins. This was the idea that Keynes and the others, including Hume, had introduced earlier. But Charles White made it seem scientifically defensible because of his measurements. He had measurements, so it's got to be science, right? <laughs> and... He laid out these very careful charts in his work that showed the facial angle stuff from inferior to superior with the Roman painters and the Grecian antiques on the furthest right. Like Camper. Yeah, except that Camper really wasn't laying out a hierarchy. Remember, Camper was talking about aesthetics and beauty, but not talking about the relative worth of the different groups of of people that he was, people and animals that he was uh, portraying with facial angle. So White took it a step further. A real step (laughs) further in the direction of of, uh, polygenism, yeah. In his account of the regular gradation in man, he lines up human skulls at the top and other animals, the ones that John Hunter showed, at the bottom. So fish graded into lizards, into dogs, into apes. Right above that, Africans graded into Asians and into Europeans just like Ernst Haeckel would do uh, about uh, 100 years later. The implications whack you over the head, and it becomes a model that gets followed well into the 19th century, right up to the end of the 19th century. Now, to his credit, Charles White foresaw how far this polygenism argument could go toward deepening racism and even beyond. If the African man was only one insensible degree from the ape, what would keep white men from treating him like one? White did not want his polygenic science to help justify slavery. On the contrary, as he stated as plainly as he could, one could not read justification for slavery in his work. The slave trade, he said, should be, quote, abolished throughout the world. Yeah, but 
even though he could sense the danger in his work, he couldn't keep himself from really coming out with hints of racism. For example, in his postscript to the account, he suggested that if European colonists were allowed to interbreed with native populations, mulattoes would soon overwhelm Europeans. He was terrified of race mixing. Every race was to remain in its own climate zone. Um, except Europeans, though, right? Absolutely. So, so we have just talked about a bunch of different guys who, for the most part, knew each other pretty well in these salons and stuff. So what, what's the main take-home here? What, what was their role in the development of race science, and why are we even talking about them? Okay, so there's this tendency to write the history of race and science where we bounce from Bernier to Linnaeus to Blumenbach, and then we're like, hey, five races and skulls, and we're done. And maybe, maybe we talk about people like Arthur Gobineau or Samuel Morton in the early 19th century before we're already on to Charles Darwin's view of race. And then, pow, we're on to eugenics. Uh, yeah, uh, this, this is the same thing that Stephen Jay Gould brought up in 1981 in The Mismeasure of Man. That's the kind of capsule history that he gives of the idea of race. Yeah, even more recent books on race and science sort of just skim over a lot of this, perhaps in part because they're not such history nerds as we are. But nevertheless, it's really important. I, I don't think that they intend this, but unfortunately, I think jumping over a lot of the Enlightenment stuff gives the impression that there were essentially these two parallel things happening in the late 18th century. On the one hand, you have scientific racism. And then on the other hand, you have the de jour legal slavery and apartheid and segregation. They're presented as happening at the same time, but they're not presented as interrelated. I don't know how you talk about things in anthropology, but at least in U.S. history courses, we do discuss major figures like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington owning slaves, but we don't discuss them. We talk them. about Thomas Jefferson screwing slaves. Yeah, we do. <laughs> too. It's we, true. We just don't discuss them developing ideas about how the United States should work legally by reading the figures that we discuss today, like Cames and Mombato and Hume and Hunter and Charles White, and then Jefferson and Franklin and others picking up on these racial positions as, quote, natural, the way that the world is supposed to work. Yeah, in anthropology, we do sometimes get around to talking about the history of scientific racism a bit, but that's certainly in a minority of classes. And even those of us who do teach on it could do a much better job, I think, of linking race science to other really important things going on at the same time, like state formation, which I think is what you're trying to say too, Eric. Yeah. Um, there's some exceptions to this trend, and one of them would be Jim here. That's true. Whom I've seen do a great job in the classroom of linking the emergence of racism to broader political economic processes. Really? Yeah. Really? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's why you're here. It's not – I would just say all the textbooks I ever used, I ever had as a student in anthropology, did much, much, much less than even the – than even Gould did. I mean, Gould was a massive improvement on everything, you know, before him. And he's, you know, chopping and, and cutting and, and also mistranslating hmm. and lying. Uh, okay, yes. One of the crossover moments is when we have Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. It's one of the first really important books written in the United States, and it hits on the topic of race. It reflects the influence of these Enlightenment thinkers. It's one of those books that made Jefferson more respected in the French Empire even than he was before. You can tell that he's borrowing and arguing with French scientists like Buffon as well as the Scottish philosophers like Hume. In his notes on Virginia, 
He defended the nobility of the Native Americans as noble savages, makes me think of Rousseau, against what he took to be Buffon's position of them as a somewhat degenerated race. And he did it using words that he would have borrowed from Keynes. According to Jefferson, Buffon said climate degenerated Native Americans into a lesser group, but Jefferson disagreed with Buffon and thought that Keynes was essentially right. Climate didn't change the natives so much, despite the huge climatic shifts from North America to Central and South America. Buffon then must be wrong about climate being the great determiner of racial characteristics. If only European Americans gave the natives the same opportunities, Jefferson insisted, we shall probably find that they are formed in the mind as well as in body on the same module with the Homo sapiens europaeus, hewing to moral causes, as Hume would have suggested. But we can't infer from reading Jefferson's take on Native Americans that he would be willing to extend that same argument to other kinds of people. For instance, he claimed that Africans, by virtue of living alongside whites during the course of slavery, had already been given plenty of examples of high culture, European culture, and had even been educated. Still, Jefferson said, and I want to go ahead and quote him here, the improvement of the blacks in body and mind in the first instance of their mixture with the whites has been observed by everyone, and it proves that their inferiority is not the effect merely of their condition of life. Yeah, he quote. had personal experience with that. Hey, wait a minute. It sounds like he's setting up the one-drop rule here. What do you mean? Well... He seems to be suggesting that blackness is some permanent condition that sticks with offspring, even though that offspring might have one white parent. The mixed-race child's still inferior, according to Jefferson, right? That would stick around in the American legal system through the 19th century. Uh, yeah. Uh, who says it ended in the 19th century? Good point. Even later in his notes on Virginia, he's more explicit. Here's another quote from him. The blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments of both body and mind. Yeah, that's pretty explicit. <laughs> yeah. And what's more, in, in this part right here that he's writing in the notes of Virginia, this is where he's talking about Virginia's new legal code that's supposed to be a model for the rest of the new United States. So Jefferson is talking about laws. And he seems to be looking straight at what was written by those Scottish jurists and philosophers that we've just discussed today. Here's another quote from that section. Will not a lover of natural history then, one who views the gradations in all the races of animals and men with the eye of philosophy, excuse an effort to keep those in the department of man as distinct as nature has formed them? This unfortunate difference of color and perhaps of faculty is a powerful obstacle to the emancipation of these people. Did you, did you catch that gradation stuff? That's straight from the mid-husband, John Hunter. Exactly. <laughs> so, so Jefferson was taking these theories of race and channeling them directly into what he thought should be done legally about emancipation? That's right, and just how he thought the United States should be governed right at the beginning of the process. Wow, that is helpful for explaining the embeddedness of American structural racism, like what we're still dealing with today. But gentlemen, I believe I was promised thugheads. Where are they? I think we've covered too much already. Well, the Edinburgh Phrenological Society, where the thugheads were sent from India, does connect up with this story. Yeah, but it'll take us over an hour to get us connected to it. Okay, I guess we can save that for another episode on race and the rise of phrenology. Ooh, that will take us to a place that we haven't been before. Vienna, Austria, in the days of Mozart. But eventually it does get to the thugheads, right? I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. Right? And I'm Eric, the historian of science. Thugheads? 
I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist, and you have been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much. Cut the poor bastard to bleep. It'll be fine. You can say bastard. I don't know how to bleep. You can say bleep. I don't know how to bleep. You can figure out how to bleep. I'll just say bleep like that. (laughs)